0: Father in heaven, uh, we pray that now as we open your word, we can be as those early followers of Christ were, uh, devoted to the apostles' teaching. Father, we come to the scripture and we read now that which, uh, those that you anointed and those which you chose to write, that which is true. And so we pray that we would be devoted to it, that we would revolve our very lives around the truth that is here. Holy Spirit, please help us. uh, Take away distractions, uh, both externally and internally, that we may really hear. Please, God, through your word, I pray you would transform us, change us, uh, work in us in such a way that we would glorify you reflect you uh, honor you in every way this we pray in jesus name amen turn please to acts in chapter 2 i want to read again uh, verses 42 through 47 i said read again because we were here last sunday and we'll linger here for just a little while so acts chapter 2 verse 42 please Hear the word of God. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I want this morning to concentrate our attention on this expression uh, from verse 42. And they devoted themselves uh, to fellowship. Uh, they devoted themselves to fellowship. The they uh, would refer to Uh, These 3,000 that we read in verse 41 who are added to the number of the 120 that were there to start with, these believers, these followers uh, of Jesus. We don't know uh, the exact number, obviously, because this is a bit of a summary expression as the early church, but but we do see here that there's these 3,000 plus 120 that is likely to make up uh, the they there. Now, they were together in Jerusalem, you might remember, as the book of Acts begins, that Jesus is telling his disciples that they're to wait in Jerusalem because they're going to be baptized in with the Holy Spirit. And when they do, they'll receive power, and they will be, therefore, witnesses of Jesus, Jesus' witnesses uh, here, there, and everywhere, that is, in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the other, uttermost parts of the world, they're to the ends of the earth. And uh, they're going to be witnesses of Jesus, that, that the kingdom of God has come in him, that he surely is the Son of God, that he is the very one who died on the cross. And when he died on that cross, he died for the sins of sinners, that all who believed in him would be forgiven their sins. Uh, adopted, really, into the very family of God, to be belong to God and to God himself. And so they were to be witnesses of all of this. And not only that, then after uh, Jesus told them these things, he ascended. And and in in his ascension, we learn that uh, that he is both Lord and Christ. Christ, in the sense that he's the anointed one, that he's the prophet and the priest and the king. The prophet is the very truth of God. The priest, he's the very one who represents us before God, makes sacrifice of himself to God on our behalf, uh, and that he is the king, that is, he rules and reigns over all things. Therefore, Jesus is, in fact, as we professed together just a few minutes ago, He is indeed Lord. He's been given that name which is above every name. He is the Lord. He's the one who saves. He's the one who rules and reigns. He's the one in whom we trust. He's the one we follow. He is both Lord and Christ. And now, uh, all of that, All of that happens. We read that the Holy Spirit does, in fact, come upon them and all the big happenings there that we've talked about over the last number of weeks. And it shouldn't surprise us that these ones who are saved, these early ones who come together, these early ones who belong to Jesus, find themselves devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, uh, to the breaking of bread together, and to, um, to the prayers and the reason it should surprise us, as we've said before, as we mentioned last Sunday, is the fact that, that this group of people is the very temple of God, the very temple of the Holy Spirit. And we went back last Sunday to think about the fact that when this, the tabernacle, which was this movable worship temple thing that God instructed Moses to put together, which would be in that place the very dwelling place of God among his people and then finally the temple that Solomon built which is that permanent place and that would be the very dwelling place of God among his people we know that God can't be contained in a particular place but God says I'll dwell here among my people this is where you'll find me if you will in this place Then, when all of that happened when the spirit of God came in that tabernacle in the temple it was, it was something great and there the presence of God would be And what we find taking place in that Old Testament temple would be sacrifices for sins so that people's sins could be forgiven. We found the priest teaching. We found fellowship meals happening amongst the people. Uh, We found people coming there to pray. We found tithes being collected, offerings being collected for the poor, and all of that, all that taking place in the very presence of God among his people. And so now that the Holy Spirit has come upon this group of people and all Christians after that, but this particular group of people, the scripture tells us that they're the very temple of the Holy Spirit. They're the very presence of God on the earth, if you will, amongst these people. And so it shouldn't surprise us then that we find the very same kinds of things happening in that temple of God that happened in the old temple of God. And that is... There would be a place where the announcement would be made of the forgiveness of sins. Sacrifices no longer needed to be made in that sense because Jesus had already done that. But that would be the place. These would be the people from whom this message of forgiveness of sins would go. And they would be taught. And they would fellowship together. And they would pray together. And they would help one another all in the midst of this place. Now no longer a building. But this group of people in whom the very Spirit of God... Would dwell. All this happened on this day, this ancient Jewish festival called Pentecost, which was a time when they were celebrating the first fruits of the harvest. And so on this day, the Holy Spirit comes, and it's the first fruit of this new spiritual harvest. They commemorated on this time of Pentecost the giving of the law when Israel became a nation to follow after God. And on this very day uh, comes the Spirit of God to gather for himself a holy nation, a group of people who would be obedient to him. Uh, by the Spirit, so all that takes place, and so again it doesn 't surprise us that they devoted themselves to the apostle 's teaching, which would lead to fellowship, uh, because if they devoted themselves to the apostle 's teaching they 'd hear about Jesus because that was the apostle 's teaching. They would hear about the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus and the, the work of Christ and all that, but it wouldn 't take very long before they would hear the commandment of Jesus. And the commandment of Jesus was that they were to love each other as he had loved them. Remember he said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, that is, that you follow after me because you love each other. And the newness of that commandment wasn't simply loving other people, but it it was the standard of that love, it was the quality of that love. It was to love as I have loved you. That was the newness of that commandment. And it was to be for them. And you realize that we can't obey that alone. That we need an object. We need someone else to love. And so together they come and they form. They become this, 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 this fellowship. And this fellowship is no light thing. It isn't just a handshake at the end of a meeting. Now that might take place in the context of fellowship, but but that isn't what he's referring to. It isn't just shake each other's hands or even even hug each other. It isn't uh, simply uh, singing around the campfire, singing "Kumbaya." I'm really glad it's not that. I mean, I I, I never liked that anyway. But but I'm glad uh, it isn't it isn't that. It isn't just simply a group of people coming together who are so much alike and enjoy each other's company so much, they have a great deal of fun. It might be a great deal of fun from time to time, but that's not the essential DNA of this kind of fellowship because this, this fellowship is an earnest partnership. It's an earnest sharing together in life and a sharing together of life, uh, one with another. It's a communion together. It's sharing a union with each other, this uh, fellowship. As opposed, to, as opposed to most of us, um, it may have its most natural understanding in the context of a family or a family life. Um, the scripture says that a man should leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and that the two should become one flesh. That's, that's intimate fellowship. When the two become one flesh, there's this sense of understanding that we share life together, that we share thoughts, that we share emotions, that we share experiences, uh, that we share uh, opinions, that we share uh, suffering, that we share joy, that we share all of life together. I don't live without you. You don't live without me. When a man and and woman comes together as husband and wife and are united together, there's that sense of sharing. And then when children enter into that family relationship, there's that sharing as well, this fellowship. They're part of that, that fellowship of that particular family. And there's a sharing of real life together. That's what we're after here, he says. We're after that kind of sharing uh, of, of life together, that, that mutual uh, life together. Because you see, Christians share in this common life. Or as the theologian Pastor Bonhoeffer put it, sharing life together. It's a shared life. It's a common life. Uh, We do that because we have a common Lord. The scripture says that Christ is our peace, for instance. In Ephesians, in chapter 2, verse 14, the first part of it, we read those exact words. For He Himself, that is Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one. You see, He has made us one with the Father joined together with him, but also joined together with each other. The cross broke down the barriers between us and God. It it, it paid for our sins. It satisfied the wrath of God. Therefore, it took away God's enmity against us. So it broke that down. And it also breaks what keeps us from each other as well, which is our pride, which is, I'm really better than you. Which is, I'm really independent, not only from God, but from you. And the cross, you see, takes care of all of that. It shows that we, we do need God. And we do need each other. We're humbled in the midst of all of that. And So verse 18 of this passage says this, For through him, that is, through Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father, So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, that is, strangers and aliens from God and strangers and aliens from each other. You're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God, by the Spirit. You see, therefore we're born together, we're joined together, excuse me, we're joined together because we're all born of the same Spirit. Um, Paul puts it like this in 1 Corinthians uh, in chapter 12, verse 13. He says, For in one Spirit... We were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greek, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. And so you see, as we're born by the Spirit of God, we're all born into the same family. We have the authority to call ourselves children of God. We have this birth certificate that says we're children of God. And it's, it's, it's <laughs> you could be crude about it and say it's signed by the Holy Spirit. He says, I've given birth, you've given this new birth to you. And so, so you're a child of God and you're in this family. And so you share now uh, this life together. We share this common faith. We all understand ourselves to be sinners in the sight of God. We all understand that we have no hope apart from the mercy of God that he would show to us. We have no hope beyond that. And we realize, though, that our hope is in Jesus. He's the very mercy of God to us. He's the very one who's died for us. He's the very one who's come so that we might be forgiven our sins so that we might belong to God. We all believe that. We share that common faith. That's what drives us. That's what fills us, that very faith in Christ. And that's that's true for us all as believers in Christ. And so we share this common life because now we're joined together in a body. And that's a work of the Spirit. He joins us together in this body. And that's also something then that we live out together, one to the other. We share that together as the very household of God. And we're to share life with each other. We're to share joys and sorrows. Perhaps, for me at least, uh, one of the richest expressions of this sharing life together is that we're to weep with those who weep. And we're to rejoice with those who rejoice. And that's to be a real, sincere weeping. And it's a real, sincere weeping because we share life with that person. Uh, When you hear of the difficulty of another and it doesn't move you, then you understand that you are to that degree removed from them. We know the closer one is to us, when we hear of life's difficulties, then we know we're moved by that. And there's an extent to which, in sharing common life with each other, that as we hear of the difficulties of one another in real fellowship, in real sharing, in real partnership, that that's to move us. Now again... Don't, I'm not heaping guilt on you at the moment. I'll do that later. But I'm not heaping guilt on you at the moment. I'm just saying we, we all know that's true. We all know that we, we're good at this and not good at this. We fail at this and succeed at this at various times. But we do know that. you know. In fact, a small thing going on in the life that we're very close to moves us a great deal. A huge thing in, the per- in a person that we're not very close to doesn't move us at all. And so we're just learning here that in fellowship, real fellowship, we're to weep with those who weep because there's a sense in which we are, in fact, one body. We're all joined together. And we're to rejoice with those who rejoice. That is, we're, their happiness is to be ours. When they're, when they're um, fortunate in whatever way, we're to rejoice in that. And you may say that's easy, but it isn't necessarily easy. Uh, not when there's jealousy. You see... Sometimes it's easier to weep with those who weep than rejoice with those who rejoice. Especially if someone else is having a good day when we're having a bad day. Especially when someone receives the good fortune of something that we would like to have, but we don't. But again, we know that the closer we are to someone, the more we love them when they receive that which is good and beneficial and blessing to them, we rejoice, even if we don't have it. In fact, it may be that we may give up something in order that they may be happy. And we rejoice in that. So we know what that closeness is like. We know what that means. And, and, and I believe what is true in the context of fellowship, real fellowship, is that there is a sharing of life together, one with another. And this isn't, of course, then, just sort of a a partnership like in business. It's not just sort of a functional thing because the very grip of it is based on love, based on a mutual affection for one another. As Jesus said, by this, all people will know know that you're my disciples uh, if you love each other. The Apostle John uh, takes that from Jesus and expands on it in his first epistle. For instance, in John chapter 3 and verse 10, he says it like this. He says, by this it's evident who the children of God and who, the children of the, and who are the children of the devil. So he's saying, here's the indicator. Who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. That seems to put the stakes very high, doesn't it? And then in verse 14, we read this of the same chapter. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And then chapter 4, verse 7. He writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God, and anyone who does not know God and anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And then verse eleven. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love uh, one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And then verse nineteen. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Again, not a sentimental thing necessarily, but a real thing in in us. And this love, I think, has a component to it that moves us, compels us to act, because it's a real love. And the biblical word for that is often compassion. Compassion more than just feeling sorry for the hurt of another, but compassion meaning I, I feel compelled to help in some way, to do what I can to alleviate this suffering. That is to be merciful to another. Um, I suppose if, if you know me, you would know that one of my favorite healing uh, Miracles of Jesus is in Mark chapter 1. And I say it's not very important for you to know what my favorite one is. That's pretty irrelevant, actually. Um, But I do like this one uh, a lot. I think about it often in my context of my own life for a couple of reasons. I remember it's a healing of Jesus where he heals a man of leprosy. And I remember as a kid when I had tonsillitis tonsillitis wishing I had leprosy because Jesus could heal that. (laughs) There's nothing in the Bible that says he healed some kid of tonsillitis. is um, isn't to make light of leprosy. I was much better off with my tonsillitis at the time. But, uh, but there's this story of Jesus and, he, and, he, and, he, and, and a, a, a man with leprosy. And, of course, we know, what, we know what that means. We know that that man was an outcast in his culture, that he was one who wouldn't be touched, that he wouldn't be approached by anyone. A man with leprosy comes to Jesus and he says to Jesus, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And then it's the next expression that grabs me. And it says of Jesus that he reached out his hand and he touched him. And then he said, I'm willing. Be clean. But I think that's this sense of fellowship. Fellowship. There's this sense of sharing life. It isn't just writing a check and sending it off somewhere. That's a great thing to do. Don't stop doing that if you're doing those kinds of things. But try even in that to enter into the fellowship, the life of those people you're helping. It isn't simply a mechanical relationship, a functional thing that we're in here. It's real life together. And we need to have this compassion We need to be moved to weep and to rejoice. We need to touch. We need to be moved to touch. In some sense, it should be automatic. It should be just something that comes. It should be something that happens. And and I know, I'm not trying to emphasize touch here, because I know some of us touch and some of us don't touch just by nature of our personalities and all that sort of thing. But you get the point, I trust, that this is a shared life and a shared life Together and we see it in this first group of Christians uh, in Acts chapter 2 the things that Luke emphasizes no doubt are the particular kinds of things going on there notice in verse 44 in back in Acts chapter 2 he writes and all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need and day by day uh, attending the temple together, and breaking bread in their, house, in their homes, they received food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people and so forth. So you get the sense that this fellowship uh, is not only a togetherness in studying, a togetherness in learning from, these, from the apostles, but also there's this togetherness, so much so that, that even possessions are shared, so much so that even homes are shared, so much so that, that meals are shared. Uh, you get this sense that Paul, when he writes in Romans chapter 12, uh, kind of summarizes this in, 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 the, in this sentence. He says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. In other words, be a person that's involved in the lives of the saints, that you're contributing when they have needs, that you're a part of that. And show hospitality. Open Not just open your home, but open your life to those in need among you. Does that make you uncomfortable to hear that? That they were sharing their possessions in such a way. I mean, the way Luke puts it here, he says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Sounds like a communist. Uh, they were selling their possessions and distributing. I mean, and they were always together in those kinds of things. We I mean, I mean, consider our own lives and. Our own need for space and our own need for stuff and our own need for our own property and and, and all of that. Now they had some unique features here in this particular point in the history of the church. And I don't want to overlook those because we can become confused. And that is first, this was a unique situation in the sense that there are a bunch of people who are from out of town, from out of the country who had come into Jerusalem for Pentecost. I mean, here they were. Can you only imagine? Uh, you, you, you're a Jewish man from some place in the dispersed, some way off place in the uttermost parts of the world, according to these people, the ends of the earth, as Luke had described it earlier in Acts chapter 2. Uh, there were those from the ends of the earth who were there. And so here you are you're in Pentecost. You're doing your obligation, maybe even sincerely doing that, and and so you've made provision to come to, pen, to, to, to celebrate this annual uh, festival and so forth. And then, kaboom! The Holy Spirit comes upon you, and there you find yourself, a believer in Jesus, saved and all of that, filled with the Holy Spirit. Now what do you do? Do you shake hands with Peter at the end of that sermon in Acts chapter 2 and say, thank you, I enjoyed that, and go home? Or do you stay around and say, could somebody explain to me... What's just happened to me? I mean, I have faith, and now I'm seeking more understanding. What will this now mean in the context of my life? Is there anybody here at whose feet I can sit so you can tell me what's been going on here? And, 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 and you realize, yes, the apostles. And so the suspicion is that there are large numbers of people here, hundreds if not, I don't know how many were from Jerusalem and how many from away, but here they are, of this 3,000, and they find themselves probably out of provisions pretty fast. I mean, these were probably most likely to be men, so we know they didn't pack enough underwear, you know, and so forth, and all of that to go on this trip, let alone food and so forth and so on. Money wasn't quite as disposable and so forth as we have in these days where you can just go to an ATM and kind of get it or charge it on your credit card or whatever that happened to be. And so there you were. But what's so good here is that the instincts of this early band of Christians is to realize, I'm sharing in your life. This is really important for you to stay right here, right now. And so I'll do whatever I can. We'll do whatever we can to help you stay at this particular moment in time. This is what's valuable. This is what's important. And it wasn't a situation where everybody to enter into this fellowship had to come in and sell all your stuff and put it in the middle and then everybody sort of just take it from there. It wasn't that kind of thing. Not everybody was selling. Not everybody had stuff to sell. And everybody who had stuff to sell probably wasn't selling. This was a voluntary kind of thing, a voluntary kind of move of love, sharing in life, one with the other. And here they were. And and things would would change over the course of time. I mean, the church hasn't hadn't completely, you know, grown and matured at all by by this point. Uh, by chapter five, there'd be a need for church discipline. Um, oddly enough, uh, over this very thing that was so commendable—selling in order to help another—got perverted just within a chapter and a half uh, by. Chapter 6, there were other issues and needed an administration team of deacons to, to, to figure that one out. Later on, they'd stop meeting every day and meet once a week, as it appears by Acts chapter, chapter 20. Then later on, they'd have to answer questions about, especially in terms of hospitality and helping people. What happens if somebody doesn't work? And they can. So Paul has to address that and say, well, they don't work, they don't eat. What about the widows? Is every widow going to be helped? And Paul will talk to Timothy about that and lay all of those kinds of things out. So, so please, we're not saying that everything has to look like it happened on this particular time, at this particular time. But the point being that the instincts are the instincts of the Spirit, if you will. This is right and true. However that fleshes out in a particular moment in time, the point is that this was a group of people who understood. Maybe they didn't even understand it of cognitive, being able to write a paper about it, being able to explain what they were doing. But they knew that they were together. and They knew that if I have a possession, then I have no claim over it. In fact, the way Luke puts it in, in, in Acts chapter 4 and verse 32 is like this. He says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. In other words, you may have a translation that said, no one claimed that their own possessions were their own. That was the very point. They looked at their possessions. In fact, they looked at their lives and said, this, these, it's not mine. All of this belongs to Christ and I to him. And so if all belongs to Christ and I to him, then all belongs to you and I to you. We're sharing life in this together. And so, you get now the points of love your neighbor as yourself. That is to say, if it's mine, it's yours. If you have a need, then why am I not considering that as if it were my own? Why am I so distancing myself from your need? Why am I not able to enter into your life and you into mine and us to share? Now understand all the qualifiers that may or may not be bouncing off in your head at this point in time about what's best and how to best love and all of those kinds of things. But just take the point. Take the guts of it. That's who we're supposed to be. That's, that's to be our very spiritual DNA, if you will. That we're to, to love like that, to consider one another uh, like that. And there's, there's great freedom uh, in all of that. You remember how Jesus spoke of possessions. He tells the story in Luke that's recorded in Luke chapter twelve of this rich fool who had so much and he just built bigger barns and then he died. And do you remember how Jesus introduces that? Verse fifteen of Luke twelve. He said, "Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance." Of his possessions. In other words, there's something more important in life than what you own, than what what you possess. And he puts it later by saying, verse twenty-one: "So the one who lays up treasure for himself, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself. It is not rich toward God." So there's something else here. There's a sense of treasure in heaven. Um, it isn't, I don't think. What my Sunday school teachers told me is every time you do a good thing, you, an extra brick floats up into heaven. and, it, and, it, and it, So if you do enough good things, then when you get to heaven, you have this really, really big mansion. And I was even smart enough then to go, but it wouldn't do you any good because you couldn't brag about it in heaven. I mean, you know, so, so what? Give me a small one. I'll move in with the guy with the, rich, with the big one because he can't say no. Uh, you know? Not there anyway. So it isn't treasure in heaven like that. But you get this sense of richness and fullness in the very presence of God. Yes. Don't get tied to this stuff. And so you could see they had the very instincts, if you will, that that Jesus had talked about. Don't don't, don't, don't claim these are yours. They're, They're not. You could lose them in a minute. You could lose them in a flash. And so, be generous uh, with uh, all of that. Uh, we know the, the uh, story of the rich ruler that comes to Jesus. Again, unsettling for us uh, because of what Jesus says to him when he comes and says that he's obeyed all the commandments and Jesus knows what's in his heart. And so, he says to him, One thing you still lack, sell all that you have, to distribute to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Now, most American preachers are quick to say, no, you don't have to go out and do that. Go ahead if, if, if you want to. I'm not, you know, I don't want to impede your spiritual life. Uh, but the point being that what possesses you? What really possesses you? Do you love these in need? Do you love God? Or are you possessed by these, by these possessions? We could go on there. Many, many passages, many, many verses that we could, we could lay claim to. But as the church develops, we see this kind of fellowship being being there all the time. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may, uh, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. In other words, it was just, a, just just something they did. They took collections to help people, not only help the poor, but help people understand, know the gospel in the same sense that we tithe, that we give money in the context of the life of, of, of ministry. In fact, amazingly, so much a part of the, the fellowship, the DNA, the sharing of life that this was in the context of the church was that even the poor desired to do this. You remember uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Paul says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief relief of the saints. So basically what you have is a bunch of very poor people hearing about a bunch of other poor people that in their minds seem to be going through a big crisis. And so in the midst of their poverty, so much so are they in fellowship, even with these people they probably don't even know, but they share a common father, a common savior, a common faith, thus a common life. They can't help but beg to give. You you get the impression that Paul is saying, no, 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 don't give that pair of shoes because that's the only pair you have. And they say, oh, please, take them. And That's the sense that you get. That's the heart that's there. There's great blessing for us to be like this. There's great personal blessing. I mean, don't you want to be in a fellowship like this? I mean, just... You know, selfishly, don't you want to be in a fellowship like this that says, I know that if I had a need, people would come to me and help me. I mean, isn't that the kingdom of God? Isn't that what the kingdom of God is like, to be in that kind of fellowship, that kind of community? Not just need financially, but need in all kinds of ways of, of loneliness and help to be in that kind of fellowship great blessing in that regard and not only that there's great joy for us to realize that we can play a part in the relief of the burdens of the saints and to help of those people for whom Christ has died and not only that we realize that it's an expression of great freedom that we realize I really can help I'm really not hanging on to my possessions. There's something good about this that I can really give and I really see there's something more important than my own, my own possessions here. And not only that, it's, it's the very guts of our witness. You know the passage in, in Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus uh, tells us that we should do our good works in such a way, do these things in such a way that people see them and glorify our Father who is in heaven. I mean, there's always this great sense that when you're helping someone like this, even if nobody knows, even if you're slipping in under the door, even if you're sending a card, whatever it happens to be as you share in the life of another, if no one knows, maybe just the two of you still. God is being glorified in the midst of all this and thanks is coming to him. In Second Corinthians in chapter 9, we read this, about such ministry. Verse 11, Paul writes, you'll be enriched in every way for all your generosity, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. It produces thanksgiving to God that people turn and say thanks to Him. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. I don't know if you've ever experienced being in a situation where you've helped someone and they don't even know it's you, but later on you hear them praising God for that very thing. I can tell you, There's nothing that thrills your soul more. No thank you note that they can write to you. No no bragging about you to other people. They tell you how wonderful you are for helping them. But when it comes back, when you hear that they've actually given credit to God for this, and it spiritually affects them in such a way that they go to him, there's nothing that thrills your soul more than any of that. So why any reluctance on our part? Why any reluctance on our part to share life with each other? And again, not just financially, but but why any reluctance to be hospitable to one another, to open our lives to each other? I suppose there's just a lot of very basic kinds of things. Modeling, we've never seen it. Perhaps we've been hurt in various ways before. Others haven't helped us. You can go through a long litany and a long list of things like that. It may be very legitimately that our life is just full at the moment. Maybe in the context of our own family, we're just extending ourselves and various other kinds of things we're extending ourselves. So at this moment in time, it's hard for us to engage. We're just distracted by that. Maybe our own need is so great because of illness or, or otherwise that, 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 that we're the ones that need help. And, we, and I understand all of that. But the great danger for the bulk of us or at least a great danger for most of us at most of the time it's just frankly let's be honest can we do that for a minute it's just selfishness fear greed I'm afraid because I know that if I enter your life even this much you may suck my whole life into yours <laughs> that I may lose my time that I may lose my money, that I may lose my emotional energy, all in your life and in your situation. And I just don't want to go there. I just want to stay back here. That's just the way it is, I think. By and large, we're going to get all, scrape away all the stuff. That's often where it is. And I think I can say this without heaping guilt because I think we all know it to be true, that that's simply a lack of trust in God. Here's how Paul puts it in St. Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. The point is, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Do we believe that? Do we believe that? And again, this isn't a matter of give $10 and get 100 That's not what I'm into here. But the reaping bountifully is this treasure in heaven, this intimacy with God of knowing him. Each one must give as he's made up in his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. <sighs> Rats. Right? I can't just do it out of obligation. I can't just say, oh, this and no farther. I can't just say, this check and leave me alone. I've got to be happy about this. Really, for it to be that kind of sharing life together, that kind of hospitality. And God is, and then, then, then he just gets us for Do you believe this? Do I believe this? And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times you may abound in every good work. He said, Listen, you can't run out. You really can't run out. As it is written, He has distributed freely, He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. It says, if you want to, to, to be to grow. Bountifully in righteousness here 's how to do that. you'll be enriched in every way for all your generosity, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission, flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. Or well, they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. I haven't time to deal with that. This last sentence. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Why do you think Paul threw that in there? It isn't just sort of to be spiritual all of a sudden. Well, I've been talking long enough. I need to mention Jesus. It was think about him. He shared his life. He gave his life. He shared his life. He entered into your life. Enter in. See, the thing that really ultimately moves us is what Christ has done. In fact, as Paul begins Romans chapter 12, where he comes eventually to say, contribute to the needs of the saints and practice hospitality, be hospitable to each other, His plea and all of that, as he begins by, he just simply says, by the mercies of God. So I want you to think about the mercies of God. I want you to think about how God was merciful to you. But when we think about how God is merciful to us, he isn't saying, God was merciful to you, therefore pay him back by being merciful to others. But he's saying, think about the impact of the mercy of God on you, what that's done. What the mercy of God has done is he shared his life with you as he gave his life for you, is to break the power of sin. And in breaking the power of sin to transform you into being a person who's becoming conformed to the image of Christ, who's one who shares his life. And so this isn't asking anything of you that isn't there. It isn't asking anything of you that isn't part of who you're becoming. It's to be like Jesus. Jesus. Be merciful. Share. Enter into the lives of others. Do that. And not only that, the mercy of God causes us to trust him. We say, look at what he's done. He is trustworthy. And so if he says, this is life, and if he says, you can't run out, and if he says, he'll continue to supply you grace so that you can help other people in their need, then isn't that true? And so he says... Think about the mercies of Christ. Be merciful. Be compassionate. Love. Share in the lives of others. Be in fellowship. Be devoted to it. Because in the night that Jesus was betrayed, you see, he took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body Which is given for you. How amazing it is that the Son of God, the very Lord of glory, could speak of his body. He could speak of his body because he entered into our lives. And again, after giving thanks, he took the cup. And this too he gave to his disciples and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember, I took your sin. Remember, it was an act of my mercy. I saw you in your misery. I saw what it was doing to you. I saw that it was your condemnation. And I came and I took it. That you might have life. And now he says to us, remember that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, pray for me and for us. The first in believing in Jesus and remembering the cross, realizing the incarnation, his sharing my life, taking my sin, his mercy towards me, to us. I pray that we simply would receive that great mercy and walk in it, live in it, trusting that that mercy transforms, trusting that that mercy is not leaving us in our sin, but transforming us in such a way that we'd be conformed to the image of Jesus, I pray. Therefore we would be in fellowship with all his people sharing life because we trust you, God, that you'll always supply us. We'll never run out. You will enable us to love. make this fellowship and the fellowship of all together believers in Christ like that we pray and I pray even now God that you'd take this bread, this juice and you'd use it in such a way that would enable us to think upon Christ and his mercy to us and that even as we come to this table that we can fellowship with our Lord Jesus that we can receive him by faith and feed upon Him, and that even in the feeding upon Him, that we would be more conformed to His image, most especially in this way, to share life with each other, all those who belong to Christ. This we pray, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I remind you that this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church, but it's the table of the Lord, and he invites to it all those who've received his mercy. All those who understand themselves to be sinners in his sight, without hope, except in his sovereign mercy, who believe and depend upon the Lord Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel, that is, as the savior of sinners, the one who entered into our life and took our sin, the penalty for it that we might believe and have life and all those therefore who desire to live in such a way that is consistent with the profession of faith in him repenting of sin, confessing of sin, receiving forgiveness and walking together in fellowship and love if that's true for you let me invite you to come to these two sections down the aisle to my left these two sections down the aisle to my right Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, eat it, and think, I've received mercy. May I give it. Please come. And now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us, that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And together, let us sing.